Hello, and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. And we are still in Midwest March. Uh, (laughs) Some more (laughs) exciting stories this week. Yeah, super exciting. (laughs) I think you're up first. Alrighty. Well, today's story for me is that of the weepy voiced killer. So on September 8, 1994, Paul Michael Stefani was born the last of 10 children to his Catholic family. His parents divorced and his mother remarried when he was just three years old to a man that, you know, enjoyed beating his stepchildren and sometimes even going so far as throwing them down the stairs. Oh my gosh. The Catholic family has 10 kids. I didn't think you could divorce in Catholicism and then like, well, I'm guessing the second one wasn't married in front of the church. Uh, I'm guessing. (laughs) I don't know much about Catholicism. I only went sometimes as a kid because my grandma was Catholic on my dad's side. So yeah, I'm pretty (laughs) sure like you had to have an annulment or something special to get married in the church but but to get through 10 children it's usually like too long of a marriage to have an annulment yeah no that wouldn't work yeah i'm guessing with a dad like that that probably was not a traditional catholic funeral or a funeral (laughs) funeral funeral (laughs) for the family (laughs) marriage for her (laughs) yeah it I'm, i'm assuming divorced just because it didn't say it just said that she remarried yeah but I could, I was guessing I could be wrong. He could have died, which that would probably fix that stipulation. Yes, it would. But nothing in this states that he had a dead dad. Who knows? So I'm not sure. <laughs> Paul ended up marrying Beverly Leiter and they had a daughter, daughter together, but the relationship didn't last long and they soon divorced. He had several jobs, but was fired from his janitor position at Melbourne Manufacturing Company in 1977, where his first victim would be found nearby. Paul Stefani attacked Karen Potak on December 31st of 1980 in St. Paul, Minnesota, inflicting severe wounds and a brain injury. He ended up calling the police at 3 a.m. to report the attack, telling police to go to a location where, quote-unquote, there is a girl hurt there. Hurt, dead, you know, just totally close. Luckily, she wasn't dead. Oh, wow. Only attacked. She had severe wounds and a brain injury, but thankfully survived. That's crazy. Um, Yeah. But on June 3rd of 1981, his next victim, Kimberly Compton, an 18-year-old student from Pepin, Wisconsin, was not as lucky. No. He found her in Minneapolis, and after killing her, he again called the police, this time whining... God damn, will you find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. But he didn't kill the first one. Yeah. All right, sir. Maybe just (laughs) stop stabbing people. (laughs) Or go directly to the police. You know, you would think. He wants to be caught, but he doesn't want to give himself up kind of a thing. Yeah. He wants a little back and forth with the police first. A little razzle-dazzle, I guess. Yeah. He doesn't want to just turn himself in he's already whiny whining for that attention which i mean i could assume with 10 older siblings or nine older siblings he probably didn't get much attention other than the beatings from a stepdad so i can see you know 
Nobody paid attention to me. So I must kill. (laughs) Two days after he called back to say he was sorry for stabbing Kimberly and would turn himself in. But of course he didn't. (laughs) And then on June 6th, he rang to claim newspaper reports of some of the murders were inaccurate. (laughs) That's what that was about. Hey, you're getting it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, dude. And then his next call was a few days later on June 11th. And in a whimpering, barely rational voice, he cried, I'm sorry for what I did to Compton. I just hate him already. (laughs) It's weird. It is really weird. Like, I even listened to one of the calls, like, on YouTube. Yeah. Like, at least part of it where I could hear his voice. I don't even whine like that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, listen, you whiny bitch. Knock it off. Like, I stabbed someone. Can you find me? Like, yes, go to the police station. We'll gladly tell us your name. Maybe. (laughs) We'll gladly come find you. Where do you work? Any (laughs) hit would be good, you know? Exactly. His third victim was Kathleen Greening, who was found at her home just outside St. Paul. Paul later confessed to drowning her in a bathtub, but he did not call after her death, Hmm. which was odd. His fourth victim and last murder victim was 40-year-old nurse Barbara Simmons. The two met at the Hexagon Bar After Paul asked Barbara for a cigarette, which she gave him. After spending the night at the bar with Paul, Barbara said to a waitress, He's cute. I hope he's nice since he's giving me a ride home. And unfortunately, he was not nice. No. Uh, Barbara was found the next day, stabbed to death. There were no calls after Kathleen Greening's death. But the weepy voice killer called the police after he had murdered Barbara, saying, Please don't talk. Just listen. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. He's still going on about Kimberly. Huh. Which makes me question things. Like, did he really mean to kill her? Or did that just set off a chain reaction? Because he's still going in about her. Yeah. I don't don't know what the... Not the other ones, just her. I don't know what the uh, professionals would say about that one. But it'd be interesting to to get their thoughts... Yeah. What's the motivation behind that one? Exactly. On August 21st of 1982, Paul Stefani picked up a 19-year-old sex worker, Denise Williams, in Minneapolis. Denise felt as though something was wrong when Paul started driving through a dark suburban area rather than bringing her back to the city where he had picked her up. After turning to a dead-end road, Paul stabbed her 15 times with a screwdriver. Jeez. During the attack. Yeah. Yeah. That's like brutal with a screwdriver of all things. Yeah. Talk about slow kill. Jesus. During the attack, Denise was able to hit Paul on the head with a glass bottle, causing cuts to his head and face. Good for her. Right. And she was loud because Denise's screams got the attention of a man who lived nearby. And when he saw Paul trying to stab Williams again, he began to wrestle with him, causing Paul to flee. So, thankfully, somebody stepped in. Yeah. Because there's so many things now where, like, almost like a bystander code where people, like, stand there and watch or they leave. 
and he actually like stepped in and did something. The man was able to call for an ambulance and later helped to identify Paul. However, when Paul returned to his apartment, he noticed he was bleeding terribly and sought medical attention. It was this call that confirmed Paul Michael Stefani was the weepy voice killer and linked him to the Denise Williams attack and further investigation connected him to the bar murder of Barbara Sim Simmons. Hmm. So, you get what you get. In 1997, Paul was diagnosed with skin cancer and was given less than a year to live. Because of this diagnosis and expiration date, he decided to go ahead and confess to the murders of Kim Compton, Barbara Sim Simmons, and Kathy Greening. He wasn't even a suspect in the Kathy Greening murder yet, as he had not made a phone call to the police like he did after the other murders. So they hadn't even, like, thought of him as an idea on that. Yeah. Huh. In all, he confessed to a beating attack in 1980, stabbing Kimberly Compton to death in 1981, the drowning of Kathleen Greening in 1982, stabbing Barbara Sim Simmons to death in 1982, and stabbing Denise Williams in 1982. During Paul Michael Stefani's trial for the Barbara Simmons murder, Paul's ex-wife, sister, and a woman who lived with him testified that they all believed the hysterical caller revealing the attacks was in fact Paul. They're like, yeah, that's him. <laughs> <laughs> but those odd for like, observations alone were not enough to identify Paul as the weepy voice killer since the hysterical crying distorted the voice. But thankfully, he was still convicted of killing Barbara Simmons and the attempted murder of Denise Williams and was sentenced to 40 years. He eventually died in prison the next year in 1998 from skin cancer. So either way, he didn't get out. Yeah, which but. is good. Yeah, 40 years. He didn't get life? It seems odd. Right. You would think. Dude's obviously got issues. Let's, let's plan to let him out eventually. <laughs> but that is all I've got on that one. All right. This is kind of an odd one. Also based in uh, kind of the 80s, well, no, late 70s, so semi-close, but this is the story of Barbara Hoffman and the body in the bathroom. <laughs> I need, like, jazz hands. I gave it a cool name. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do, like, a that show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? There's a little, oh little spiel they say. The Midnight Society, and then they tell the name, and then they do the little blow thing, and then the fire fire goes up. Just just imagine that for mine. <laughs> that and then jazz hands as the fire is going. <laughs> you don't see it, but we're, you know, jazz vigorously hands. doing jazz hands. Yeah. In the 1970s, Madison, Wisconsin had a variety of massage parlors. Names varied from the Geisha House... This is Heaven and Jeannie's Magic Touch. Oh. <laughs> so they sounded like massage parlors with a special happy ending. Yeah, I'd say. And they were they were exactly that. Figured. Yep. Jan's Health Studio was located in a shopping mall, but offered the same type of massage as the others, despite its more normal sounding name. <laughs> a man named... Gerald Davies frequented Jan's and he fell in love with one of the masseuses, 25-year-old Barbara Hoffman. Previously, Barbara had been a student at UW-Madison, which also happened to be the same campus where 
31-year-old Davies worked as a shipping clerk. Barbara had been a biochemistry major with a 3.9 GPA, had a high IQ, and had been a National Honor Society scholar who spoke three languages before she left to work at Jan's. Oh, wow. Like, I'm a very smart student who does well and speaks three languages. <laughs> I'm going to go massage some D for work. The money probably wasn't there. Yeah. But Barbara was hoping to leave the parlor, which attracted some unsavory characters like Wisconsin cocaine kingpin, Sam Saro, Caro, C-E-R-R-O. And as a side, side note to this, he was later charged for conspiracy to distribute cocaine and filing false income tax returns in the early 80s. Barbara eventually left the parlor in 1977 to work for an insurance firm, but she and Davies kept their relationship going. On December 23, 1977, while Davies was staying over, Barbara told him that on the previous day, she came home to find a nearly naked body in her bathroom, and she had no idea who he was. She guessed that maybe it was done by some of the organized criminals back at Jan's who were angry at her for leaving, so they were trying to frame her for murder. Yeah, right, Barb. <laughs> wow. So... Barbara said that she panicked and dragged the man's body outside and hid it in a snowbank, but needed Davies' help. Davies told Barbara to call the police. Smart. But she, she said she couldn't do that because there was no way they'd believe her story. No shit. I mean, because it's not true? Yeah. I just found this body in my bathroom. It was murdered. <laughs> I don't know how that got there. So the pair moved the body from the snow and put it in Davy's car. Together, they moved the body to a different snowbank. Oh, my God. This time, 20 minutes away at the entrance of Black Hawk Ski Club. They both agreed to keep what happened a secret and then went to their own homes as they each planned to spend Christmas with their own families. Barbara went to her parents in Illinois and Davies to his mom's an hour away from Madison. Davies promised to keep Davies promised to keep it a secret lasted about 30 hours. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> yeah. On Christmas Day, he went to the police and told them everything. The story sounded fake, but they escorted him to the Black Hawk Ski Club where they found a dead man dressed in just his underpants and tied up in rope. Police got a warrant for Barb's apartment. They didn't find evidence of a corpse, but did determine that bleach was used to clean the bathroom floor. And that wasn't surprising because people use bleach to clean up things all the time, especially in a bathroom, and to clean up things other than blood. But weeks passed before a CSI crew could check out the snowbank behind the dumpster where Davies said the body was before they moved it. Blood and hair was preserved there. So they thought Davies had been telling the truth about the body being there. Meanwhile, they looked into who the dead man was and discovered he was 52-year-old Harry Burge, who worked at a tire company in Stoughton. Harry had a $30,000 life insurance policy, with Linda Miller listed as the beneficiary. 
However, police didn't know who Linda Miller was. Burge was thought to be single and had lived with his mother until she died a few years before. When they mentioned the name to Davies, he said, Oh, that's Barbara. Barbara is Linda Miller. (laughs) It turns out Barbara had met Harry Burge in the same massage parlor where she met Davies. After leaving the massage parlor, she tried cutting ties with her previous life. So when she wasn't calling herself Barbara Hoffman, she used the name Linda Miller. With a policy in her name, Barbara had a motive for killing Burge, and she had obviously been lying about not knowing who he was. Prosecutors had enough to go forward with the case against her, with Davies as the chief witness, since his girlfriend had been lying to him while apparently in a relationship with another guy. Then, weirdly, police were sent a letter, supposedly from Davies, saying things like, Barb is innocent and I wrecked her life. All those stories I told about Barb are false. He sent the same letter to Donald Eisenberg, Barbara's lawyer, and to the local paper, with handwriting experts later authenticating them all. Odd. So really, really weird situation. However, the letter did not say what the true story was, and before anyone could ask him... Davies was dead. His body was found in his bathtub a little after Easter with the cause of death unknown. If Barb was innocent, like Davies' letter said, only one suspect remained for who killed Burge, Davies himself. The theory could make sense until you think about some of the facts. According to the medical examiner, Burge died from trauma to the head. A woman could be responsible for it, but police thought it sounded more like something a man would do. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) We can't hit people on the head hard with things. We have weak female muscles. Oh, Lord. Not someone who, say, I don't know, probably has decent-sized muscles from massaging grown men all the time. (laughs) I'm sure they wanted a good grip, so, you know, gonna have some arm strength. (laughs) Another theory was that Davies could have entered her home, caught Barbara and Burge together, and killed Burge. However, blood evidence showed the body had spent time under the snow near Barbara's dumpster, where that was supposedly as far as Barbara could drag it herself before she asked Davies for help. But if Davies killed Burge and also took the body to Blackhawk, there was no reason to ever leave Burge's body there. And if Davies entered Barbara's home and found Burge there alone, Davies could have killed him and left the body for Barbara to find. That would mean that Barbara really did end up finding and dragging the body behind the dumpster in the snow and waited a day before asking Davies for help. So there's a lot of weird theories. Right. When Barbara's court case began, it was with the prosecutions being one witness short their most important witness. The district attorney announced they were dropping the charges against Barbara Hoffman. However, right as Barbara walked out of the courtroom, police arrested her again, this time for the murders of Burge and Davies. Not long after they found Davies' body, police found he had taken out a life insurance policy with the beneficiary listed as Barbara Hoffman. 
Oh, wow. The policy was for $750,000. Knowing Barbara had motive, they ran every test they could on him and discovered he died of cyanide poisoning. Police then redid the autopsy on Burge and found that he had also died from cyanide, not the head trauma like they originally thought. Oh, wow. It was found that Burge had 40 times the lethal dose of cyanide in his system. And they didn't see that before? No, they just went off the head injury. And 52, they probably just assumed the head injury would be enough. Police were also looking into the criminals mentioned at the beginning of the story, including an associate of Sarah's named William Grover Garrett, who was manager of Jan's health studio, where Barbara worked previously. Garrett said that back when she worked at the parlor, Barbara mentioned a plan to marry a guy, put her name on a massive life insurance policy, then take him on a Mexican honeymoon and poison him. Her plan was to cremate the victim so when she got back to America, police would have nothing to analyze. Oh, wow. Garrett was willing to testify against Hoffman, and coincidentally, Garrett and Sarah had also previously engaged the services of Barbara's lawyer. At that point, Eisenberg probably should have dropped out of the case and not risk being um, disbarred over conflict of interest. Um, Right. But Eisenberg did not drop out. And as a side note to that, later Eisenberg did end up being disbarred over sticking by his client, but was reinstated in 2000. (laughs) Barbara Hoffman's... Yeah. Barbara Hoffman's trial was the first one in history to be fully televised, which I did not know that. It's kind of crazy. Right? Eisenberg had hoped for two trials, one for each victim, but had to try to defend against both in the same trial. Garrett testified. Hoffman's old biochemistry professors talked about her knowledge of cyanide, and police produced proof that she had bought enough cyanide to kill both men. I couldn't really get any details of why it went this way, but the jury ended up acquitting her on the Davies charge, but found her guilty of murdering Burge, and she was sentenced to life in prison. Barbara was convicted on July 1st, 1980. Barbara hasn't given an interview or statement other than, I did not commit the crime of which I have been accused and for which I have been convicted. And that's all I have to say. That's all she's ever said about the case. In 1981, Barbara Hoffman appealed the conviction. She had six items in her defense on why it should have been dismissed. Lack of new evidence, lack of probable cause, supported by untrue allegations. Um, There was plenty of probable cause. Yeah. Did the, what does this one say? Did the production of bank records at trial violate the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution and deny defendant her right of discovery? Was defendant's cross-examination of Garrett improperly restricted? It just kind of goes on in a bunch of different things about using her phone bill. Did the state commit prejudicial error in its closing argument by A, misstating the evidence, B, using defendant's phone for an impermissible purpose. C, arguing from defendant's phone bill despite its failure to provide her with reciprocal discovery after receiving her notice of alibi. D, commenting on the pretrial silence of her parents. 
it's kind of a bunch of weird stuff in the appeal trying to get figured out, but it did not work. Barbara Hoffman is currently 70 years old and is incarcerated in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Well, I'd say she did it. This is a kind of crazy story of Barbara yeah, Hoffman. Yeah, I'll say. As I was reading the different articles on it, it was kind of confusing with all the different stuff. I'm like, okay, what's true? What's not? There's all these different theories. New York Daily News, Cracked.com did an article, and that's where some of that came from. Law.justia.com had the appeal uploaded and i got barbara's information from the wisconsin wicourts.gov and you can look up by a case or defendant's name okay interesting interesting topics this week yeah well thank you so much everybody for listening stay safe out there and watch out for the crazies Bye. bye thank you for listening to this week's episode The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomptech.filmmusic.io.